Well, good morning. It is so good to be back here again with each of you today. And um, today we're going to be talking about shepherds and servants or leadership in the local church. And so next week we're going to be kicking off our series of First John, which will go through Easter. So really looking forward to that and being back in a book of the Bible. Um, but periodically it's good for us to take time and to think about what the Bible says about a particular topic. And so today we're going to do that in talking about leadership in the local church. And so my goal this morning is for us to think biblically through what can be a controversial topic. Uh, people have opinions about this topic. Uh, others would say that there are just some best practices that we should be following. Still, uh, others argue for what's most efficient. While there's no doubt there's more or less efficient ways for churches to organize, I, I want to say from the beginning that we're not after efficiency. We're after biblical faithfulness. So what does the Bible say about church leadership? And to begin, we'll start with a quote from one of my favorite books, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And he's quoting George Orwell's Animal Farm. And here we go. <laughs> All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. With that line in the last chapter of his tale, Animal Farm, George Orwell delivered his summary critique of Karl Marx and the Soviet Russian government. The story is a well-known one. Animals rise up, organize, displace the Joneses, the human owners of the farm, and begin to run the farm for their own benefit. Thus the name Animal Farm. Run by animals, for animals, so the story goes. He goes on to say, of course, being after the fall, this utopian experiment is bound to fail, and it does. In the end, a new ruling class emerges, the pigs. And by the book's conclusion, they're putting up those signs. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Uh, among other things, Orwell is critiquing the abuse of authority. Unfortunately, it's something we've become accustomed to hearing about, or many of us experiencing. But is authority, in and of itself, a bad thing? Is godly authority a bad thing? I want to suggest this morning that it's not. I love these words from 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 4. 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 4. So these are the last or the dying words of King David. It says, The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, and here it is, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, verse 4, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Isn't that amazing? Godly authority, rightly exercised, helps everyone under it to flourish. So, 
Does the Bible actually speak about church leadership? Or are we merely left in the dark trying to figure it out? Better yet, are we free to invent our own leadership system based on the newest and the most efficient business models? Or does God's word give us direction? Who should lead the local church? Who should lead the local church? Scripturally speaking, there are two offices of church leadership in the New Testament. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Deacons and elders. The first leaders in the New Testament church were the apostles. Along with apostles, we see prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, which are mentioned in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. But apostles, prophets, and evangelists are typically not recognized as offices pertaining to the local church. So when you search the New Testament, there's no instructions for qualifications for apostles, prophets, and evangelists, like there are for deacons and elders. Also, they aren't mentioned as officers of any local churches in the New Testament. Most biblical scholars see apostles and prophets as extraordinary ministries which served a foundational purpose, but are not mentioned as an ongoing office in the church. In fact, after Acts chapter 6, which we're going to look at a little bit later, we see the apostles almost fading into the background. By Acts chapter 15, the apostles, as part of the Jerusalem council, they don't even hand down a decision. But instead, they act in unity with the elders and with the whole assembly. Acts 15. So what we do see in the New Testament are two distinct offices in the local church. We see elders and deacons. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are saints, Christians, so to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. It's these two offices that I want us to kind of zero in and focus on this morning. I know that these kind of topical studies can be somewhat academic, but I want us to understand that these are implications of the gospel that we believe in. Jesus came to this world to rescue ruined sinners like you and like me. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place, taking the full wrath of God that each and every one of us deserve. He rose from the grave to give eternal life to all who would repent and believe. He did all of this by grace. But here's what I want us to see. Those same people that Christ died to save, he didn't abandon. He, he called them into local outposts of the gospel, into communities that would display his glory to the end of the earth. He called them and us into local churches. And our God isn't a God of chaos. He's a God of order. He gives us instructions about what the church is and how she's to function and even how to structure leadership. 
So all of this is an implication of the gospel and of God's character. So office number one, deacons, or we'll call them lead servants. If you have your Bibles, if you'll open them up to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. We're going to take a look at deacons or lead servants here. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. Isn't that amazing? And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. First and foremost, I want us to see that this is really where the office of deacon began, here in Acts 6. Uh, The apostles, which would eventually transition into local church elders, they saw their calling as the ministry of the word and prayer. Look at verses 2 and 4. Ministry of the word and prayer. And in order to steward that calling well, they appointed people to, the text says, Serve tables. And that word serve in Greek is diakoneo. Diakoneo, which is the word we use for deacon. These that are chosen are lead servants. They're chosen to meet the practical needs of the congregation. Now, we know that that all of us are called to serve as Jesus served. But these are chosen to be officially recognized servants. They're examples to the rest of the congregation of what faithful service even looks like. Again, the elders are set aside for the ministry of the word and prayer, which we'll discuss later. And this is a distinct office. But in order to create that space for elders to function biblically, Deacons are instituted to create bandwidth. Now, in many churches, Baptist churches specifically, deacons can end up taking on authoritative, ruling, decision-making roles. They're the power brokers of the church. Maybe you've been in a church like that. I don't know how to say it without just being blunt. That's not, that's not... (laughs) what this passage or the rest of the Bible teaches. A deacon is a lead servant. And this isn't a negative thing at all. Jesus himself took on the role of servant, even to the point of washing his disciples' feet. 
Without deacons deaconing, the church simply wouldn't function the way God intended it to. But what are the qualifications for deacons? Before we jump into 1 Timothy and the qualifications listed there, I want us to stay rooted here in Acts 6 for a second. Notice verse 3. Acts 6 verse 3. He says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Even that one verse can tell us a lot about the qualifications for deacons. We hear that the deacon's function is service and meeting practical needs in the church. And it's easy to think, okay, we're basically looking for a good old boy who's good with his hands, he's good at fixing things, Mr. Fix-It type. Not exactly. What does the text say? First, good repute. They have a good reputation. People know them to be upstanding individuals. Further, it says full of the spirit and wisdom. These are spiritual people who not only know God's word, but know how to apply it. They have wisdom. All of that comes into play in how a deacon ministers in the church. Practical example. Part of a deacon's role is administering benevolence to help out hurting church members and non-church members as well. As a pastor, you don't have to be around for long to figure out that those types of decisions take wisdom and someone who's full of the Spirit. Not, not everyone who comes in asking for money or help is genuine. There are certain people that we just shouldn't help, either because it would actually hurt them in the long run, or because it would be bad stewardship of the congregation's offering. That's always a fine line, though. It takes wisdom. And deacons are the ones typically making that kind of a call. People fill out a benevolence form that goes to a group of deacons who prayerfully decide how best to help individuals involved. That's a practical act of service right there that I'm incredibly grateful that God has given us the office of deacon for. That takes wisdom. All right. Let's look at further qualifications for the deacons in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, if you'll flip over there. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So I'm not going to walk through each of these words in detail, but what I want you to see is that these are all character qualities, aren't they? These aren't skills. They aren't professional accolades. 
God is looking for a person of character to serve his bride, the church. They also play a vital role in serving in such a way that the elders are freed up to pursue their calling. And so for lack of time, if you want to know more about deacons, uh, this is a fantastic book that we actually use in our deacon training here. We've got several extra copies of it. If you want one, come find me after the service, and it's yours. So Deacons, How They Serve, Strengthening the Church by Matt Smethurst. So deacons, um, I really want to encourage you guys to, to look through that text in 1 Timothy 3, familiarize yourself with these character qualities. Um, we, we did this last year, and we're going to be doing this again this year. We're going to be asking the members of this church to submit names of people that you see deaconing without the name tag. Who do you see deaconing without the name tag? Who do you see serving the body with the qualifications that are listed here in 1 Timothy 3? I want you to note those in the back of your mind. Hold on to those because we're going to actually be asking you to submit those names later in this year. So let's move forward to our second church leadership office. If that is deacons, the second one is elders. Elders. And I want us to start by looking at a few terms. One important term with reference to church leadership is the word overseer. Overseer. We see this word in passages like Acts 20.28. And we're going to go through a handful of quick passages that we'll have up here on the screen for you. Acts 20.28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Acts 20, 28. Philippians 1, 1, which we already read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 2. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And then he goes on to list all of the qualifications. Titus 1.7. For an overseer is God's steward. Must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. 1 Peter 5.2. He's encouraging them. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Same word. Not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. While the term episkopos is most commonly translated overseer, it has also been translated as bishop, which took on a completely extra-biblical meaning within the Roman Catholic Church. While each of the above usages of the term that we just read through refer to leaders who were in local churches. The term bishop came to be used to refer to one of the most significant titles in the Roman Catholic hierarchy. Bishops in the Catholic Church ruled over many churches and over lower clergy. We would see this as inconsistent with scriptural evidence for what that word actually means. In scripture... An episcopos, an overseer, is a leader in a local church who gives spiritual oversight. So that's the first word, 
overseer. The next word is shepherd or pastor, which comes from the Greek word poimen, shepherd or pastor. While this word is used significantly less to describe a church leader than an episkopos, it is commonly used of Jesus as the good shepherd and the shepherd of Israel. Further, it's clearly a role that church leaders are expected to fill as under-shepherds of Christ. 1 Peter 5.2, he's talking to elders, and he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. We also see the verbal form in Acts 20.28, 20, which we'll look at in a bit. The only other place where we see this word referring to leadership in a church is Ephesians 4, verse 11, where it says, And he, meaning God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Now, don't get me wrong. This is still a very biblical term to use of a church leader because of the function of a shepherd pastor. It's very much in line with what you see shepherds doing in the Old Testament and even today in Israel. Shepherds take care of sheep. They protect the sheep from wolves. They feed the sheep. They lead them and correct them. It's a good thing when under-shepherds resemble Jesus, the chief shepherd. So that's the first two words. Overseer and shepherd-pastor. The third and final word used for local church leadership in the New Testament is a word presbyteros, presbyteros, which is commonly translated elder. Passages referencing elders in the local church would include Acts 11.30, Acts 14.23, Acts 15.2, verse 4, verse 6, verses 22 and 23, Acts 16.4, Acts 20.17, Acts 21.18, 1 Timothy 5.17 and 19, Titus 1.5, James, James 5.14, 1 Peter 5.1, 2 John 1, and 3 John 1, and possibly 1 Peter 5.5. It's all over the place. That's what I want you to see. So if you haven't figured this out by now, these three terms seem to be interchangeable and seem to be different ways to describe the same office. Overseer, pastor, elder. And the clearest two passages where we see this this interchange of these words, are Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter 5. So Acts chapter 20, verse 17. We see that, that Paul's talking to the elders, or, or the presbyteros, in the city of Ephesus. Here's what he says, Acts 20, verse 17. He says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So he's speaking to elders, presby elders presbyteros. Then, when he's speaking to them in verse 28, he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, poimenon, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 1 Peter 5 is very similar. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd 
the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So in verse 1, Peter addresses the elders, presbyteros, and then tells them in verse 2 to pastor or shepherd, poimen, the flock, and serve as overseers, episcopos. While a singular term for the leaders of a church doesn't seem to concern the early church, they do seem to care greatly about what these people do and who they are as Christians. Okay, so we've already kind of been answering this question, but what does an elder do? What is the role of an elder? One theologian has described the role of shepherd elder as this, a subtle blend of authority and care, and as much toughness as tenderness, as much courage as comfort. I think he's right. The following that we're going to look at are roles of elders that we see clearly in Scripture that match that description. The first one, an elder is responsible for shepherding the flock. Shepherding the flock. The the classic passage using the shepherd imagery is one we all know well. Psalm 23, where the shepherd, King David, wrote this. He wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The Bible also uses this shepherd imagery to describe those who lead God's people in Ezekiel chapter 34. It's no wonder why both Paul and Peter would use this imagery to describe the role of elders. This isn't an image of a distant ruling board, is it? But of a caring, loving, leader who is amidst the sheep, who smells like sheep, who knows the sheep, shepherd. Almost all of the following roles that we're going to look at are part of that, of shepherding the flock and what it means to be a shepherd. As keepers of the sheep, New Testament elders are to protect, feed, lead, and care for the flock's many practical needs. So first, feeding the flock. An elder's role is to feed the flock. We talked about that in Acts 6, the ministry of the word. Throughout the New Testament, one of the primary roles that we see given to elders in the church is that of feeding the sheep. Jesus, as the good shepherd, was consistently teaching the flock, wasn't he? And even commissioned them in Matthew 28 to teach all that he had taught them. He even gave them the Holy Spirit to help them recall all that he had said and done. In John chapter 14, 26, we also see Jesus speaking to Peter in John chapter 21. And what did he tell him? Three different times. That if he loves him, he'll do what? Feed my sheep. This role of elder is front and center for Jesus in his church. He wanted Peter to know that. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Even more, this is one of the qualifications to be an elder, able to teach. 
able to teach. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the protecting role. But what do sheep love to do? Sheep love to eat. They just don't always eat what's healthy for them. Real sheep often eat trash and poisonous weeds. So part of the feeding role of the the shepherd is to make sure that the sheep are eating good grass and what's nutritious for them. And so a faithful elder must be able to feed the sheep with the word of God. So feeding the sheep. The second role of an elder is to lead the flock. To feed the flock and to lead the flock. Again, sheep left to themselves tend to roam and to get lost. A faithful shepherd works hard at managing and stewarding and setting the direction for the sheep. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule or lead or direct or manage well be considered worthy of double honor. Titus 1.7 states that elders should be morally and spiritually above reproach. Why? Because they are God's stewards, the text says. God's stewards. This word stewards means that they're household managers who have responsibility over the master's servants, over the master's property, even over finances. Further, as we learned earlier, elders are called overseers, which means they supervise and manage the church. So feeding the flock, leading the flock. Third, protecting the flock. A third role of elders in the local church is to protect the flock from false teachers and wolves. We're going to see this repetitively as we go through the book of 1 John. That's what he's doing there. In Acts 20, verses 28 and following, Paul says this. He says, pay careful attention. In other words, he's telling the church, be on guard. Why? Look at verses 29 through 31. So Acts 20. Chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. He tells them, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Friends, the scriptures are abundantly clear that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 One of the primary ways that Satan devours Christians is through false teaching. That's been his playbook since day one. In the garden, Satan subtly twisted God's word and got Adam and Eve to question what God really said. Faithful elders must protect the flock from wolves and roaring lions with God's word. So elders feed the flock. They lead the the flock. They protect the flock. And fourth, they're examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, 2-3. Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
elders are called to be examples to the flock. And to make this his point, I want to shift us to the qualifications for an elder. If an elder is to be an example to the flock, what kind of example are they to be? 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And these are the qualifications right before the qualifications for deacon. Paul says this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Similarly, these qualifications are also found in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. But what I want to point out is that other than the qualification of able to teach, the rest of these qualifications, as we pointed out with deacons, are character qualities. And even more than that, they're character qualities that should be true of every Christian. So, back to, to the role of example to the flock, found in 1 Peter 5. Elders are the men who can be pointed to to make the statement, if you want to know what it looks like to live like a Christian faithfully, watch that guy live. Look at him. Imitate him. It doesn't mean that he's sinless, but it means in a general role, if you want to look at what Christian faithfulness looks like, watch that guy live. But we see Paul making that kind of a statement all over the place. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It says it in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, and Philippians 3, 17. That's what elders are. Yes, they shepherd, lead, feed, and protect the flock. But they're examples to the flock of godliness and of faithfulness to Christ. Well, inevitably, when discussing elders and deacons, the question comes up, well, how many should we have? While the Bible doesn't teach a specific number, or even a ratio of congregation to number of elders, we're not left in the dark. The Bible clearly teaches that there's a consistent pattern of a plurality of elders among the first churches. A plurality of elders in a singular church. What I'm saying is that we, what we see in the New Testament is that there are consistently multiple elders in one local church. Multiple elders, one local church. James chapter 5, verse 14. James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We see that elders governed the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15. 
In Acts 14, verse 23, it says, And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. Philippians 1.1, we've read this twice. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints and de- uh, saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, plural, and deacons, plural. One more. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders, plural, among you, he's speaking to the church there, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What I'm wanting us to see is that there's a, a consistent pattern in the New Testament of elders, plural, in the church, singular. And as far as we can see, each elder in the church is on the same authority plane. There's not an elder hierarchy of some sort, where one elder has more authority in the church than others. What seems to be the case is a plurality of elders who are linking arms and shepherding together within the local church. They certainly may have different responsibilities or loads, but scripturally, they're all pastors. They're all elders. They're all shepherds together. So, how does one become an elder or a deacon at Santa Cruz Baptist Church? First and foremost, I would say that the title of elder or deacon doesn't cause someone to start functioning like an elder or deacon. When looking for church leadership, we want to look around and see who's already functioning like an elder or deacon without the name tag. That's where the process starts. Deacons, as I said earlier, deacons' names can be submitted from anyone in the congregation. That's what we see happening in Acts 6. Those names are then presented to the elders and the deacons and the staff for comment. They then go through an interview process, several months of study on the deaconate. They answer a number of doctrinal questions. And then, Lord willing, are ordained by the congregation. So that's how the deacon process functions in a nutshell. Elders, on the other hand, aren't necessarily appointed by the congregation in the same way that the deacons appear to be. They need to fill a deep sense of calling to the office. Remember, 1 Timothy 3 says, If anyone aspires, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble thing. So if a man is functioning as an elder without the name tag and feels a calling to it, paired with the church's need for elders, Those men go through a process along with their wives, where both their life and their doctrine are observed extensively. Those that continue on and are affirmed are recommended to the congregation for ordination. If you're a member of this church, you know this from our last members meeting, but there are two things going on with reference to all of this. Number one, We've had a group of prospective deacons going on, um, going through the process for the last year. They're nearing the finish line, and Lord willing, we'll have deacons to present to you guys soon. That's a great thing. We currently have four deacons, but we're, we're looking to add more. So that's the first thing. 
Second, as I've already mentioned twice, we're going to be asking for new deacon nominations in the, the near future. And so I, I want you guys to be looking through 1 Timothy 3, looking through those character qualifications and looking around you, saying, who fits this, who fits this mold? Who's already deaconing without the name tag? So pray about that. Write down those names. Soon we'll be asking for you to, to prayerfully submit those names. Third, uh, Rob Hunt um, has been put forth as an elder candidate. And so we'll be voting on this at our first members meeting this year on January 29th. And so we um, plead with you guys to be prayerful in that, um, to ask any questions that you have. Come and talk to us. Um, but we are really excited about this. And we believe that Rob fits the qualifications that we've been talking about all morning. And so I'm excited to, to, Lord willing, link arms with him and to do the things that we've talked about. Leading, feeding, guiding, protecting. So please be praying for both of these huge and healthy things going on in the life of our church. And in all of this, we need wisdom. And so let's pray and ask God for wisdom and provision. He tells us in his word in James 1 that if any of us lacks wisdom, that we should ask God who gives generously to all and he will give it. And so would you guys just join me in praying for wisdom for elders and deacons in this church as we move forward? Let's pray.